Hello and welcome, friends, family, and in particular, enemies alike, to episode 111 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout the month of October, we have been reading through Greek literature and reading the Odyssey, the Iliad, Socrates' Apology. Well, today we are going to be reading Plutarch's Morals, specifically, speaking of enemies, the ethical essay he wrote entitled, How a Man May Be Benefited by His Enemies. How a Man May Be Benefited by His Enemies, translated by Arthur Richard Shiletto in 1898. I am well aware, Cornelius Pulcher, that you prefer the mildest manners in public life, by which you can be at once most useful to the community and most agreeable in private life to those who have any dealings with you. But since it is difficult to find any region without wild beasts, though it is related of Crete, and hitherto there has been no state that has not suffered from envy, rivalry, and strife, the most fruitful seeds of hostility, for even if nothing else does, our friendships involve us in enmities, as Chilo the wise man perceived, who asked the man who told him he had no enemy, whether he had a friend either. It seems to me that a public man ought not only to examine the whole question of enemies in its various ramifications, but also to listen to the serious remark of Xenophon, that a sensible man will receive profit, even from his enemies. The ideas, therefore, that lately occurred to me to deliver, I have now put together nearly in the identical words and send them to you, with the exception of some matter also in political precepts, a treatise which I have often noticed in your hands. People in old times were well satisfied if they were not injured by strange and wild beasts, and that was the only motive of their fights with them. But those of later days have by now learnt to make use of them, for they feed on their flesh and clothe themselves with their wool, and make medical use of their gall and beastings, and turn their hides into shields, so that we might reasonably fear, if beasts failed man, that his life would become brutish and wild and void of resources. Similarly, since all others are satisfied with not being injured by their enemies, but the sensible will also, as Xenophon says, get profit out of them, we must not be incredulous, but seek a method and plan how to obtain this advantage, seeing that life without an enemy is impossible. The husbandman cannot cultivate every tree, nor can the hunter tame every kind of animal. So both seek means to derive profit according to their several necessities, the one from his barren trees, the other from his wild animals. Seawater also is undrinkable and brackish, but it feeds fish and is a sort of vehicle to convey and transport travelers anywhere. The satyr, when he saw fire for the first time, wished to kiss it and embrace it, but Prometheus warned him, Goat, thou wilt surely mourn thy loss of beard. For fire burns whoever touches it, but it also gives light and warmth, and is an instrument of art 
to all those who know how to use it. Consider also in the case of the enemy, if he is in the other respects injurious and intractable. He somehow or other gives us a handle to make use of him by, and so is serviceable. And many things are unpleasant and detestable and antagonistic to those to whom they happen. But you must have noticed that some use even illnesses as a period of rest for the body, and others by excessive toil have strengthened and trained their bodily vigor, and some have made exile and loss of money a passage to leisure and philosophy, as did Diogenes and Crates and Zeno, when he heard of the wreck of the ship, which contained all his property, said, Thou hast done well, fortune, to confine me to my threadbare cloak. For as those animals that have the strongest and healthiest stomachs eat and digest serpents and scorpions, and some even feed on stones and shells, which they convert into nourishment by the strength and heat of their stomachs, while fastidious people, out of health, almost vomit if offered bread and wine. So foolish people spoil even their friendships, while the wise know how to turn to account even their enmities. In the first place, then, it seems to me that what is most injurious in enmity may become most useful to those that pay attention to it. To what do I refer? Why, to the way in which your enemy ever wide awake pries into all your affairs and analyzes your whole life, trying to get a handle against you somewhere, able not only to look through a tree, like Lincius, or through stones and shells, but through your friend and domestic and every intimate acquaintance, as far as possible, detecting your doings and digging and ferreting into your designs. For our friends are ill and often die without our knowing anything about it through our delay and carelessness. But we almost pry into even the dreams of our enemies. And our enemy knows even more than we do ourselves of our diseases and debts and differences with our wives. But they pay most attention to our faults and hunt them out. And as vultures follow the scent of putrid carcasses and cannot perceive sound and wholesome ones, so the diseases and vices and crimes of life attract the enemy. And on these, those that hate us, pounce. These they attack and tear to pieces. Is not this an advantage to us? Certainly it is, for it teaches us to live warily and be on our guard, and neither to do or say anything carelessly or without circumspection, but ever to be vigilant by careful mode of living that we give no handle to an enemy. For the cautiousness that thus represses the passions and follows reason implants a care and determination to live well and without reproach. For as those states that have been sobered by wars with their neighbors and continual campaigns love the blessings of order and peace, so those people who are compelled to lead a sober life owing to their enemies and to be on their guard against carelessness and negligence and to do everything with an eye to utility 
imperceptibly glide into a faultless mode of life and tone down their character, even without requiring much assistance from precepts. For those who always remember the line, Ah, how would Priam and his sons rejoice, are by it diverted from and learn to shun all such things as their enemies would rejoice and laugh at. Again, we see actors and singers on the stage oftentimes slack and remiss and not taking sufficient pains about their performances in the theaters when they have it all to themselves. But when there is competition and contest with others, they not only wake up, but tune their instruments and adjust their chords and play on the flute with more care. Similarly, whoever knows that his enemy is antagonistic to his life and character pays more attention to himself and watches his behavior more carefully and regulates his life. For it is peculiar to vice to be more afraid of enemies than friends in regards to our faults. And so Nasica, when some expressed their opinion that the Roman Republic was now secure since Carthage was razed to the ground and Achaia reduced to slavery said, nay, Rather, we are now in a critical position, since we have none left to fear or respect. Consider also that very philosophical and witty answer of Diogenes to the man who asked, How shall I avenge myself on my enemy? By becoming a good and honest man. Some people are terribly put about if they see their enemy's horses in a good condition, or hear their dogs praised if they see their farm well tilled, their garden well kept, they groan aloud. What a state, think you then, they would be in if you were to exhibit yourself as a just man, sensible and good, in words excellent, in deeds pure, in manner of life decorous, reaping fruit from the deep soil of the soul where good counsels grow. Pindar says, those that are conquered are reduced to complete silence. But not absolutely, not all men, only those that see they are outdone by their enemies in industry, in goodness, in magnanimity, in humanity, in kindnesses. These, as Demosthenes says, stop the tongue, block up the mouth choke people and make them silent. Be better than the bad, tis it in your power. If you wish to vex the man who hates you, do not abuse him by calling him apathic or effeminate or intemperate or a low fellow or illiberal, but be yourself a man and temperate and truthful and kind and just in all your dealings with those you come across. But if you are tempted to use abuse, mind that you yourself are very far from what you abuse him for. Dive down into your soul. Look for any rottenness in yourself, lest someone suggest to you the line of the tragedian. You doctor others, all diseased yourself. 
If you say your enemy is uneducated, increase your own love of learning and industry. If you call him coward, stir up the more your own spirit and manliness. If you say he is wanton and licentious, erase from your own soul any secret trace of the love of pleasure. For nothing is more disgraceful or more unpleasant than slander that recoils on the person who sets it in motion. For as the reflection of life seems most to injure weak eyes, so does censure when it recoils on the censurer and is borne out by the facts. For as the northeast wind attracts clouds, so does a bad life draw upon itself rebukes. Whenever Plato was in company with people who behaved in an unseemly manner, he used to say to himself, Am I such a person as this? So he that censures another man's life, if he straightway examines and mends his own, directing and turning it into the contrary direction, will get some advantage from his censure, which will be otherwise idle and unprofitable. Most people laugh if a bald pate or humpback jeer and mock at others who are so too. It is quite as ridiculous to jeer and mock if one lies open to retort oneself, as Leo of Byzantium showed in his answer to the humpback who jeered at him for weakness of eyes. You twit me with infirmity natural to man, while you yourself carry your nemesis on your back. And so do not abuse another as an adulterer, if you yourself are mad after boys, nor as a spendthrift, if you yourself are wanton. Alcman said to Adrastus, You are near kinsman to a woman that slew her husband. What was his reply? He retaliated on him with the appropriate retort. But you killed with your own hand the mother that bare you. And Domitius said to Crassus, did you not weep for the lamprey that was bred in your fish pond and died? To which Crassus replied, Did you weep when you buried your three wives? He therefore that intends to abuse others must not be witty and noisy and impudent, but a man that does not lie open to counter-abuse and retort. For the god seems to have enjoined upon no one the precept know thyself, so much as on the person who is censorious, to prevent people saying just what they please, and hearing what don't please them. For such a one is wont, as Sophocles says, idly letting his tongue flow to hear against his will what he willingly says ill of others. This use and advantage then there is in abusing one's enemy, and no less arises from being abused and ill-spoken of oneself by one's enemies. And so Antisthenes said well that those who wish to lead a good life ought to have genuine friends or red-hot enemies, for the former deterred you from what was wrong by reproof, the latter by abuse. But since friendship has nowadays become very mealy-mouthed in freedom of speech, voluble 
in flattery, and silent in rebuke, we can only hear the truth from our enemies. For as Telephus, having no surgeon of his own, submitted his wound to be cured by his enemy's spear, so those who cannot procure a friendly rebuke must content themselves with the censure of an enemy that hates them, reprehending and castigating their vices, and regard not the animus of the person, but only his matter. For as he who intended to kill the Thessalian Prometheus only stabbed a tumor, and so lanced it that the man's life was saved, and he was rid of the tumor by its bursting, so oftentimes abuse, suddenly thrust on a man in anger or hatred, has cured some disease in his soul which he was ignorant of or neglected. But most people, when they are abused, do not consider whether the abuse really belongs to them properly, but look round to see what abuse they can heap on the abuser. And, as wrestlers get smothered with the dust of the arena, do not wipe off the abuse hurled at themselves, but bespatter others, and at last get on both sides grimy and discolored. But if anyone gets a bad name from an enemy, he ought to clear himself of the imputation even more than he would remove any stain on his clothes that was pointed out to him. And if it be wholly untrue, yet he ought to investigate what originated the charge, and to be on his guard, and be afraid lest he had unawares done something very near akin to what was imputed to him. As Lacides, the king of the Argives, by the way he wore his hair and by his mincing walk got charged with effeminacy, and Pompey's scratching his head with one finger was construed in the same way, though both these men were very far from effeminacy or wantonness. And Crassus was accused of an intrigue with one of the Vestal Virgins because he wished to purchase from her a pleasant estate and therefore frequently visited her and waited upon her. And Postumia, from her readiness to laugh and talk somewhat freely with men, got accused and even had to stand her trial for incest, but was, however, acquitted of that charge. But Spurius Minucius, the pontiff ex Maximus, when he pronounced her innocent, urged her not to be freer in her words than she was in her life. And though Themistocles was guiltless of treason, his intimacy with Pausanias and the letters and messages that frequently passed between them laid him under suspicion. Whenever, therefore, any false charge is made against us, we ought not merely to despise and neglect it as false, but to see what word or action, either in jest or earnest, has made the charge seem probable. And this we must, for the future, be earnestly on our guard against and shun. For if others, falling into unforeseen trouble and difficulties, teach us what is expedient, as Merope says, Fortune has made me wise, though she has taken my dearest ones as wages. Why should we not take an enemy and pay him no wages to teach us and give us profit and instruction in matters which has escaped our notice? For an enemy has keener perception than a friend. For as Plato says, the lover is blind as respects the loved one.
and hatred is both curious and talkative. Hiro was twitted by one of his enemies for his foul breath, so he went home and said to his wife, How is this? You never told me of it. But she, being chaste and innocent, replied, I thought all men's breath was like that. Thus perceptible and material things, and things that are plain to everybody, are sooner learnt from enemies than from friends and intimates. Moreover, to keep the tongue well under control, no small factor in moral excellence, and to make it always obedient and submissive to reason, is not possible unless by practice and attention and painstaking a man has subdued his worst passions, as for example, anger. For such expressions as a word uttered involuntarily, and escaping the barrier of the teeth, and words darting forth spontaneously, well illustrate what happens in the case of ill-disciplined souls ever wavering and in an unsettled condition through infirmity of temper, through embridled fancy, or through faulty education. But according to divine Plato, though a word seems a very trivial matter, the heaviest penalty follows upon it both from gods and men. But silence can never be called to account. It is not only not thirsty, to borrow the language of Hippocrates, but when abused, is dignified and Socratic, or rather Herculean, if indeed it was Hercules who said, Sharp words he heeded not so much as flies. Not more dignified and noble than this is it to keep silent when an enemy reviles you, as one swims by a smooth and mocking cliff. But in practice, it is better. If you accustom yourself to bear silently the abuse of an enemy, you will very easily bear the attack of a scolding wife and will remain undisturbed when you hear the sharp language of a friend or brother, and will be calm and placid when you are beaten or have something thrown at your head by your father or mother. For Socrates put up with Xanthippe, a passionate and forward woman, which made him a more easy companion with others, as being accustomed to submit to her caprices, and it is far better to train and accustom the temper to bear quietly the insults and rages and jeers and taunts of enemies and estranged persons, and not to be distressed at it. Thus then, we must exhibit in our enmities meekness and forbearance, and in our friendships still more simplicity and magnanimity and kindness, for it is not so graceful to do a friend a service as disgraceful to refuse to do so at his request, and not to revenge oneself on an enemy when opportunity offers is generous. But the man who sympathizes with his enemy in affliction and assists him in distress and readily holds out a helping hand to his children and family and their fortunes when in a low condition, Whoever does not admire such a man for his humanity and praise his benevolence, he has a black heart made of adamant or iron or bronze. When Caesar ordered the statues of Pompeii that had been thrown down 
to be put up again, Cicero said, You have set up again Pompey's statues, in so doing have erected statues to yourself. We ought not therefore to be wanton in our praise and honor of an enemy that deserves a good name. For he who praises another receives on that account greater praise himself, and is the more credited on another occasion when he finds fault, as not having any personal ill-feeling against the man, but only disapproving of his act. And what is most noble and advantageous, the man who is accustomed to praise his enemies, and not to be vexed or malignant at their prosperity, is as far as possible from envying the good fortune of his friends and the success of his intimates. And yet, what practice will be more beneficial to our minds, or bring about a happier disposition than that which banishes from us all jealousy and envy? For as in war, many necessary things, otherwise bad, are customary, and have, as it were, the sanction of law, so that they cannot be abolished in spite of the injury they do. So enmity drags along in its train hatred, and envy, and jealousy, and malignity, and revenge, and stamps them on the character. Moreover, knavery, and deceit, and villainy, that seem neither bad nor unfair if employed against an enemy, if they once get planted in the mind, are difficult to dislodge, and eventually from force of habit, get used also against friends, unless they are forewarned and forearmed through their previous acquaintances with the tricks of enemies. If then Pythagoras, accustoming his disciples to abstain from all cruelty and inhumanity to the brute creation, did right to discountenance bird fowling and to buy up drafts of fishes and bid them be thrown into the water again, and to forbid killing any but wild animals, much more noble is it, in dissensions and differences with human beings, to be a generous, just, and true enemy, and to check and tame all bad and low and knavish propensities, that in all intercourse with friends a man may keep the peace, and abstain from doing an injury. Scaurus was an enemy and accuser of Domitius, but when one of Domitius's slaves came to him to reveal some important matters which were unknown to Scaurus, he would not hear him, but seized him and sent him back to his master. And when Cato was prosecuting Marina for canvassing and was getting together his evidence, and he was accompanied as was usual by people who watched what he was doing and would often ask him if he intended that day to get together his witnesses and open the case, and if he said no, they believed him and went their way. All this is the greatest proof of the credit which was reposed in Cato, but it is better and more important that we should accustom ourselves to deal justly, even with our enemies, and then there will be no fear that we should ever act unjustly and treacherously to our friends and intimates. But since... As Simonides says, all larks must have their crests, and every man's nature contains in its pugnacity and jealousy and envy, which last is, 
as Pindar says, the companion of empty-headed men. One might get considerable advantage by purging oneself of those passions against enemies and by diverting them, like sewers, as far as possible from companions and friends. And this, it seems, the statesmanlike Onamademus had remarked, for being on the victorious side in a disturbance at Chios, he urged his party not to expel all of the different faction, but to leave some in order, he said, that we may not begin to quarrel with our friends when we have got entirely rid of our enemies. So too, our expending these passions entirely on our enemies will give less trouble to our friends. For it ought not be, as Hesiod said, that Potter envies Potter, and Singer envies Singer, and Neighbor, Neighbor, and Cousin, Cousin, and Brother, Brother, if hastening to get rich and enjoying prosperity. But if there is no other way to get rid of strife and envy and quarrels, accustom yourself to be vexed at your enemy's good fortune, and sharpen and accentuate on them your acerbity. For as judicious gardeners think they produce finer roses and violets by planting alongside of them garlic and onions, that any bitter or strong elements may be transferred to them, so your enemies, getting and attracting your envy and malignity, will render you kinder and more agreeable to your prosperous friends. And so, let us be rivals of our enemies for glory, or office, or righteous gain, not only being vexed if they get ahead of us, but also carefully observing all the steps by which they get ahead, and trying to outdo them in industry, and hard work, and soberness, and prudence. As Themistocles said, Militates' victory at Marathon would not let him sleep, for he who thinks his enemy gets before him in offices, or advocacies, or state affairs, or in favor with his friends or great men, if from action and emulation he sinks into his enemy and despondency, and makes his life become idle and inoperative. But he who is not blinded by hate, but a discerning spectator of life and character and words and deeds, will perceive the most of what he envies comes to those who have them from diligence and prudence and good actions, and exerting himself in the same direction, he will increase his love of what is honorable and noble, and will eradicate his vanity and sloth. But if our enemies seem to us have got either by flattery or fraud or bribery, or venal services, ill-got and discreditable power at court or in state, it ought not to trouble us, but rather inspire pleasure in us when we compare our own liberty and purity and independence of life. For, as Plato says, all the gold above or below the earth is not of equal value with virtue. And we ought to ever remember the precept of Solon, we will not exchange our virtue for others' wealth. 
nor will we give up our virtue for the applause of banqueting theaters, nor for honors and chief seats among eunuchs and harlots, nor to be monarchs' satraps. For nothing is to be desired or noble that comes from what is bad. But since, as Plato says, the lover is blind as respects the loved one, and we notice more what our enemies do amiss, we ought not to let either our joy at their faults or our grief at their success be idle. But in either case, we ought to reflect how we may become better than them by avoiding their errors and by imitating their virtues, not come short of them. And so the saying came, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Actually, I don't actually know if that's where this this saying came from, but it just brought that to mind. Um, it was just like, man, there's a lot of like amazing wisdom that is found in this essay. Like, I have definitely like reread this multiple times, and I would encourage you to reread it as well. I've included the link to this article in my show notes for those of you who are more visual learners. Um, and you can either do that or re-listen to it or whatever you want to do because, like, there's so much, like, this is probably the most interesting one. I mean, I would definitely say the $100 prize essay on the cultivation of the potato was rather interesting to learn about spuds. But uh, this, you know, close, close second, you know. <laughs> In all seriousness, we definitely need to pay attention to our enemies because they know us so well. They know us so well. They, 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 they know what scab to remove from our skin so that their fingers can puncture our raw flesh and cause uh, such an emotional intensity inside of us. It's almost telepathic if you think about it because, like, because they're tracking your patterns. They can predict what you're going to say when you're going to say it because that's what you always do. Because we don't think about our responses to triggers a lot of times. And so Plutarch is almost calling us to become our worst enemies so that it will force us to analyze ourselves better. Because a very a very uh, condemning statement. It carried a lot of weight, and I think it stung the most in my mind, was when um, he says, but since friendship has nowadays become very mealy-mouthed or indirect in freedom of speech, voluble in flattery, and silent in rebuke, we can only hear the truth from our enemies. And I was just like, I was like, no, that's not true. And then like I reread it, and I was like, oh, you know, that's actually, that's actually a really insightful statement um, because, because of how well they do know you. They're tracking you. You know, they want, they, they have a motive for why they're doing this. They want you to be miserable and they want you to not succeed um, or they just want to humiliate you or embarrass you um, because they have a perceived, you know, disdain for something about you. Um, and so, I mean, I will throw in this caveat, obviously for people who have been abused in awful, more awful ways, emotionally, physically, mentally, stay away from those people. But, but 
I mean, the enemies that you have in your life, quote unquote, that, you know, are just basically, you know, there to like be contrary to you, they trigger you or whatever in certain ways that are non-life threatening. I would say that um, those are people that you should still maintain contact with because they they want to cause you harm in in some way, oftentimes emotionally and uh, mentally. But yeah, it, it is it is is invaluable to to keep in mind those people, um, and they they are going to say things that are not true, obviously. But weighing what they're saying, like understanding that these people are thinking rational human beings, okay? Yes, for the sake of everything, you can just be like, oh, they're idiots. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. Yes, okay. But, like, but at the same time, like, their viewpoints on things are founded in something. And it was convincing enough to them that they made it a point of contention. Other than the people who are just there to, like, troll you, okay, those people exist as well. But, um, you know, for those people that you know are not trying to troll you, uh, they will definitely, um, it, it helps to, to understand where people's backgrounds are coming from. Because then you can better, it, it softens the critique a little bit more. That all being said, if I could critique one thing just to provide... A, a little bit extra to this conversation. Um, I, I don't really agree with Plutarch's um, comment um, at the very end where he says, we ought not to let either our joy at their faults or our grief at their success be idle. But in either case, we ought to reflect how we may become better than them, our enemies, by avoiding their errors and by imitating their virtues, not come short of them. Now, I, to a point, I get where he's coming from, okay? Like, he's saying, we need to continually be improving ourselves. Don't stop and, you know, like, use our enemies at our disposal to, like, you know, better ourselves. And, like, that's free advice, right? I think he says somewhere that, hey, you got some free advice from somebody. Yeah, it's probably not presented in the most agreeable way, but you got some good advice. So, like, I, I, I see that aspect of it, but... I think this could very easily lead to a role reversal where where they were looking down on us over something and then all of a sudden it got flipped and we're looking down on them and we've just become them, you know? And I think that's that's dangerous because I think it, it can generate a, a, a self-righteousness within us that somehow, you know, we've stood on their backs to improve ourselves and now they're underneath us and the fact of the matter is there's always going to be something that we need to correct in ourselves we're never going to attain a level of perfection or righteousness that will be uh supremely virtuous okay like it's just never gonna happen and so I think we need to treat them as equals. Uh, this whole friend-enemy dynamic is is a false duality. Okay, we're all we're all flawed human beings. We all need to show each other grace and kindness and mercy 
and love. And we need to be reflecting that on those around us, not, not taking it, benefiting from it ourselves, and then, you know, being like, woohoo, you know, I've improved, you haven't, not on a boo-boo, you know, type of thing. Like, that, that doesn't help anybody and uh, is not useful to um, bettering relationships with the people around us. Uh, again, I will caveat those relationships that uh, were life-threatening. Um, obviously, stay away from those. But I'm talking about like your normal like day-to-day, -day, like I have an issue with my coworker or I have an issue with that family member or something um, by what they said or just like, you know, some non-threatening, non-life-threatening experience that we had, you know, with one another, a fight or whatever the case may be. Like those types of things, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have that dynamic of they're either my enemy or they're my friend, you know, or they're my acquaintance or something like that. Like those are not, it's not, it's not wise uh, to put titles like that into those conversations. So I will conclude my soapbox there. Um, thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I'm your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And as they say in showbiz, that's all you wrote for now. <laughs> <laughs>